You are Locked On Indians, your daily Cleveland Indians podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, everyone. This is Jeff Ellis. Uh, you know by now who I am. I host Locked On Indians. Let's uh, let's dig into today. I was going through the good old uh, days in Indians past, and we have a trade that stands out um, from 1969. So you're going back, uh, what, 51 years at this point? But it, it's definitely one worth talking about because it's there's a lot of interesting parts and pieces. Uh, it was a deal where the news uh, reporters in both cities hated the trade as it happened. Uh, we did not have kind of the big ranging world of sports as we have now, so uh, they kind of only saw what they knew. And yeah, let's we're going to talk about this one, and this trade is going to actually lead to another Indians trade to talk about. And we'll see where we go from there. Again, I'm not going to promise anything because I am long-winded and these talks can go forever. So this is the date in 1969 with the season already underway that the Indians went out and made a trade. They traded... Um, Sonny Siebert, Joe Azico, Vincent Romo, and got Ken uh, Hawk Harrelson, Dick Ellsworth, and Juan Pizarro. Uh, if I can pull up the exact quote from Hal Leibwitz, uh, you know, uh, I've got it. I lost it here. One of the Indians' worst trades, which, as we know by right now, uh, they were in a process of just terrible trade after terrible trade at this point. So calling it one of the worst is it's actually kind of uh, mind-boggling when we, you know, we know at this point we've already dealt with some of the other terrible trades in the Cleveland in- Indians uh, annals and history. Pulling up my other little document in here just to confirm. Oh, yes, we had already had the Frank Lane era, which led to all those great trades that helped build the Detroit Tigers do a championship. Uh, this trade either, I believe, happened at the Gabe Paul era before the short Alvin Dark era before Gabe Paul came again, and then Phil Segui came in and really, um, really torched things to the ground. So let's get into this deal. Sonny Siebert is a really interesting person just in general because we pull up his Wikipedia here, uh, and this shows you the danger of Wikipedia. He was originally drafted simultaneously by the Cleveland Indians and the St. Louis Hawks of the NBA. There was no draft, so he could not have been drafted by the Cleveland Indians. Um, he signed with them. That's kind of what they did back then. And he was signed as an outfielder. And because he was struggling in the minors as an outfielder, I was reading some things that his dad was actually a, a pitcher as well. Uh, but because Siebert struggled, that's why he made a really kind of late debut. He transitioned from outfielder to pitcher and did not make it to the majors until he was 27 years of age. And that rookie year, he was actually quite good. And he stayed quite good the entire time he was in Cleveland. Uh, he pitched in 64, 65, 66, 67, 68, and just a wee little bit in 69. And each of those years, he was fantastic. Um, 68 he was more league average than but and there are points he had he was an all-star in 66 uh, his best season was in 65 he was a good pitcher he'd go into boston and continue to be a, a strong pitcher in 70 and 71 for them uh at the age of 34 because again he did not he started late because of uh, what he had previously been but for an indians team that seemed to always be searching for pitching um yes there was a point a few years before this if you go back to the late uh you know, this is the late 60s, but we go kind of those mid-60s. The Indians had some interesting teams in there um, just because of the pitching staff. When you have Sam McDowell and Louis Tion and uh, players of that like, it allows you to 
have a interesting staff. Problem is they were <laughs> sitting around fifth or eighth, uh, even in their their best years. Uh, maybe not eighth was their best year, but you know they went eighty seven and seventy five, and they were fifth in the American League that year. They just could not uh, crack in the upper level. And that year, you know, your top three: Sudden Sam McDowell, Louis Tiant, Sonny Siebert. All three of those guys would end up at some point with the Boston Red Sox. Uh, because that's what the Indians apparently did was trade pitchers to the Red Sox during that era. And just, you know, looking at the Indians, we talked about that 54 team. They finished second in 55, second in 56. They would finish second in 59. They would finish third in 68. And that is the only time they would finish top three uh, until the 90s Indians. Uh, they were continually a bottom team uh and that's like i said they had some good players during those runs uh sam mcdowell louis tion standing out um above others that 68 team that finished third uh was louis tion was the best player um, they did not have a lot of hitting and by a lot basically any which held that team back but the pitching uh was there steve hargan uh, was another one of those underrated arms in team history. You still had the big three of McDowell, Tiant, and Siebert. But, you know, just to move past it, the Indians, after that 68 season, where they had um, had a relatively strong finish for them, uh, finishing third in the American League, and their, pit, their hitting being non-existent, you had Lee, uh, Maeve, Jose Cardinal, and Joe Joe Azico and Tony Horton were the only ones who were above league average in terms of hitting. The third place finish was behind Detroit, who went 103 and 59. The Indians were 86 and 75. They weren't really close. They were 21 games back, so it's all relative. But you can see why they would feel like they need to go out and add a bat, and why they have the pitching to spare. And that leads to a questionable trade on a lot of levels. Because when I was talking about the productive parts of the Cleveland Indians in 68. One was Joe Azico, the catcher. He made the all-star team in 68. He was included in the Siebert tree, uh, deal. And then your other piece, uh, Vincent Romo, was a bounce-around reliever for most of his career, uh, sometimes starter, uh, really a minor piece. So we've talked about that. We talked about Azico probably being at about his peak. So they make this deal. Uh, they get Dick Ellsworth, who at this point had was thir- uh, 29, but his best seasons, best, quote-unquote, had come with the Cubs years ago. The only categories he ever led the league in were losses, hits, earned runs, and home runs. Those are not categories you want to lead the league in. Uh, he had a fantastic season in 63 and never had anything even remotely approaching that 1963 season. I'm sorry, he did once lead the league in ERA+. Plus. Yes, that did not exist then, but that was in that 63 season where he was really good for the Cubs. But this isn't 63. This is five years later, and he's pushing 30. Uh, talking about the other players in that deal, there is 32-year-old reliever Juan Pizarro, who would spend one season in Cleveland. He was relatively effective, but again, you're looking at a guy at the wrong side of 30 who's a reliever in an era where that doesn't carry a lot of value. You're, the pitcher you're getting is, and he would pitch one year in Cleveland, Ellsworth would pitch uh, a little more than a year in Cleveland. He would come back uh, almost two full years in Cleveland, though very limited in the 1970 season. So not getting much on the return. And then the, the, big, the big player for them in this deal was getting... Uh, 
uh, Ken Hawk Harrelson. So let's talk about Harrelson. Harrelson is a interesting person, interesting player, and we'll kind of dig into uh, why the Indians valued him so much, why he uh, was someone they targeted, what happened once he came to Cleveland, and the holdup on the deal right after we take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Our sponsor today has been a great sponsor to the show, and that is Postmates. Uh, you know, the whole idea of Postmates is when you want it, anytime, any place, it'll come to you, and they're going to bring it. It's not just a food delivery service. While that is probably what they're most known for, they're going to get groceries. They can get something from Walgreens or 7-Eleven, and they can leave it just outside your door. Perfect during these times where things are a little crazy and you don't want to be going out and putting yourself at risk. Postmates can bring you groceries, can bring you things from the drugstore, or, you know, they can just go down and bring you a, a Big Mac if that is what you're craving. So for a limited time, Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of free delivery credit for the first seven days. To start your free deliveries, download the app, which is on iOS or Android, and use the code Locked On. That code Locked On for $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days when you download the Postmates app. Anything you need, anytime you need it, Postmate it. Okay, so Ken... And we're back. I guess that was not the best uh, transition. Ken Hawk Harrelson, uh, 1968, had a phenomenal year. He had 35 home runs, which was a lot. He led the league in RBIs at 109. And back, you know, when there was basically three stats that mattered. Uh, I've heard over the years people say that for, you know, he, he's now an announcer and he, he very much is not a fan of kind of advanced metrics and stuff that he should be because, like, he's more valued by advanced metrics than he is by, um, Anything else he, you know, the more traditional stats because he's always a low batting average guy. He had a 239 career batting average. In 68, he batted 275. That is a number that he never remotely approached again in a full time. I mean, his next highest batting average over a full season was 255 uh, and then 238. He had bounced around early in his career with Kansas City, Washington, found a home with Boston. Uh, always must have had a magnetic personality in Cleveland. He had a radio show that was successful. Um, he was very well liked in Boston. He did a lot of things that were successful as well. Uh, would go on to the White Sox and, you know, has done his own thing there in addition. And when this trade was announced, uh, he retired. He had no interest in coming to Cleveland. He had business ventures in Boston, and that is where he wanted to be. Uh, Bowie Kuhn talked to him and convinced him that, you know, he had to not to retire. It'd be too big of a loss for baseball. Uh, at the same time, Joe Azico and Sonny Siebert were saying, if this trade is nullified, we will not go back to the Indians. Uh, they were not happy about it themselves. It was a giant disaster. And eventually, uh, Harrelson agrees to come to the Indians. After hitting 275 for the Indians, he hit it 221. His on-base percentage, he did walk 99 times to 102 strikeouts. So his on-base was a 336, which the problem is his average is so low. That's not a great on-base percentage. He would hit 30 home runs that year uh, in an era where there was not a lot of home runs. So that would stand out. And he would be a productive player. Uh, in 70, he would get hurt before the season began, barely play. And in 71, he would retire partway through the year and try to become a professional golfer. Um, I think the only thing I note I found on that was um, trying out for the British Open. Uh, the Indians would have a new first baseman who would step in in 71 and get a lot of attention. We'll talk about that player in a bit. But, you know, it's interesting. If you look at his uh, baseball reference war, Ken Harrelson is a 6.6. .6. Of that, five 
runs of five of the 6.6 came in 68. The Indians had offensive woes, and they traded for a player to fix them. But they traded for a journeyman who was about to be 27 who was coming off a career year. And that is not a recipe for success. And they traded a established pitcher who had been extremely productive for them for a lot of years. And they traded their catcher. Now, they did find uh, lightning in a bottle with Duke Sims at catcher for that season. Uh, He had been mostly the backup. And he would be productive for the Indians for the next few years. So they actually got really good production out of Duke Sims, who came in and replaced Azuko. So that wasn't a huge loss. But I think the bigger issue is, you know, Ken Hawk Harrelson had been a top three MVP candidate the year before. And the Indians thought they were getting someone along those lines. And they weren't. And... They got a guy who was a little bit better than league average in one year and a little bit worse than that, uh, and much worse than that the next two years. And they didn't have much to show for it. They essentially got like one year out of every player in that deal, and Boston got several years out of the guys they got. So that's that's kind of how a season falls apart and how a team falls apart. Um, yeah, it's unfortunate for the Indians, another terrible trade. Now... The player that uh, kind of pushed Ken Hawk Carlson, I keep having to say his full name, I apologize, in retirement, uh, in 71 was Chris Chambliss. Chambliss had been uh, a first-round pick in the January regular draft. Now, this is a weird draft in 1970. Now, he had originally been drafted by the Reds in the June amateur draft in 67, then in the January draft secondary phase in 68, taken in the second round by the Reds. And then the Indians would get him in the first round, first overall pick of the 70. I've seen him listed as a first overall pick. The This draft was odd. The January draft regular phase was a little bit different. So the fact the Indians had the first overall pick um, doesn't necessarily mean a ton. I mean, the next most productive player, Randy Moffat, next uh, Dwayne Kuyper, who didn't sign in that first round of that year. Like, I don't look at that draft when I look at history because often this is not where the big names went. Um, This was kind of like a leftover phase. So the fact he was the first overall pick in the January phase probably means, like, if he had been in the regular draft, he would have been not even a first rounder necessarily. Uh, So it's odd. Baseball's draft history is extremely odd, but this January phase... Calling him a first overall pick gives a little more uh, value than the, what he probably w- would have been viewed uh, in most situations. He had gone to the University of California, and he would move. If you look at it, you know, like I said, they drafted him in '70 in January, and by '71 he was in the majors. Not a lot of time in the minors for him. Moved very quickly. Just 22 years of age would win the Rookie of the Year that year. Not much power. He would kind of grow into that once the Indians treated him away. Uh, But a solid hitter. You go down the line, his OPS plus is always over 100. Uh, It doesn't fall below 100 until his age 35 year in 1984. Every other year, it's it's above that. His career average is a 109. He's typically at least, you know, one whole derivation above average. Um, And when the Indians moved on, you're looking at him. He was traded in 74. One of those great Phil Segui trades. Uh, he was 25 years of age. He was just kind of coming together. And the Indians, it's it's is fun that to talk about this because I went and found the New York Times piece uh, from then by Murray Crass, 
And the whole thing is the Yankees desperately wanted a second baseman, and they had made three trades, Chambliss's being the, the latest one, uh, three trades in 10 weeks, and none of them were the second baseman they needed. And, uh, you know, their center fielder, I just can't believe this trade. It, it just means they don't think we have a winning club. Uh, Bill Verdon, who's the manager, says we feel he's capable of leading the league and hitting, maybe not this year, but perhaps next year or the year after. Uh, Mel Strottermeyer, you don't trade four pitchers. I've never been on a team that had pitchers pool. The Indians are frantic for pitching help, and they have John Ellis, a former Yankee who could play first base. So it is funny that at the time they are so mad and that Klein... So the big piece in this one is uh, Steve Klein, not to be confused with later Indians pitcher Steve Klein, who, according to the article, some thought had the potential to be the greatest pitcher on that Yankees staff. Didn't exactly come together for him. We'll be honest, he had had some, some ups and downs. That Yankees team, just a side note, in 74... Uh, Sandy Almar played 76 games at second base and played the most games of anyone at that position. Uh, former Indian Lou Pinella is also on that team. They finished second in the AL East that year. And uh, yeah, it ended up being a, a fantastic trade for them. And Duke Sims, the catcher we mentioned before, he was also on this Yankees team as a, as a backup by that point. So what did the Indians give up? Well, they give up Chris Chambliss, who is easily by far the best player in this trade. They trade Dick uh, Tidrow, who had been an okay number two type of guy. So while the Yankees traded four pitchers um, and their team was PO'd about it, Tidrow would be a better performer than anyone uh, that uh, the Indians would get in the trade. He would turn in some solid seasons for the Yankees, mostly as a reliever. He'd actually been the Indians' number two starter before this trade went down. But just a reliable high-inning reliever uh, would go on to pitch until 1984 at age 37 and appeared in 620 games. So probably the second best player in the deal. The third piece the Indians gave up, Cecil uh, Upshaw. By 1974, he was already an older guy. Uh, He would would play one more year in the majors, I believe, after this. Yeah, in 75 with the White Sox. For the Indians, he had been all right that year. Um, But he had been a free agent signing um, or maybe they had purchased him no they had traded for him for Jerry Johnson at the time and uh, Jerry Johnson had won a, been a Cy Young candidate in 71 of course the Indians get him in uh, 73 and he's already down at that point when they flip him so who did the Indians get? Fred Bean was a undersized reliever who the Yankees felt could not uh, could not pitch multiple days in a row that was kind of the knock on him. He had had, in 72, a really strong season and in 73. But by 74, there were already signs of wear and tear during his age 31 year. And 75 would be his last season in the majors. He was pretty ineffective for the Indians his whole two seasons there. Steve Klein was the centerpiece for the Indians. He was a big upside arm who, at age 22 and 23, had been a pretty effective starter for the Yankees in the same state through 1972 at age 24. 73 was a struggle, and he started out 74 struggling. Uh, he would come to the Indians. The Indians would have him pitch in 74. He'd be really ineffective. Uh, there were some possible injuries already mounting at that point with him. He would not pitch in the majors in 75 or 76, would return to the majors in 77 with Atlanta and not be any good. But he's your centerpiece for trading Chris Shambliss, and he is pitches 
Uh, 11 starts, 16 games for the Indians before getting injured. Uh, Fritz Peterson. So he'd been a pretty strong pitcher for the Yankees uh, in 69, 70, 71, and 72, looking at just a reliable, strong arm. Uh, 72 was kind of the beginning of the decline. And there are two things to talk about. One, that was his age 30 year. Two, he's, if you're out there, you're and you know the name, It's he's famous for the wife swapping. There were the two Yankees pitchers who, I mean, it wasn't just wife, they traded entire families, which boggles my mind just from the perspective of trading kids. Um, the families were incredibly close when they agreed to it, and Peterson stayed married to that woman for the rest of his life uh, from that swap that had been his teammate's uh, wife. Uh, it did not work out for his friend. Uh, he did not ma- stay married to... Uh, to the to Peterson's previous wife, uh, Mike Ketchik, but the story got out because it was impossible to not have it get out, and he was kind of booed everywhere, and there was this feeling that maybe he was struggling with the negative publicity of it all, but he also just got very hittable as he entered his 30s, and unfortunately, the Indians got him in 74, and he had not been good since uh, 71 at that point. So three years of decline. The Yankees just wanted to move on from the headache of having him on the team and that story. So they were more just looking to get rid of him, and he came to the Indians and didn't do much. Tom Buskey was really the name that stood out for me, and it's not like he ever pitched in Cleveland during my lifetime, so I don't know why, but at least he had some seasons. Uh, 75 in particular is an effective reliever, was never a starter. So they got... Um, uh, a pitcher the Yankees were desperate to get rid of because of scandal. A pitcher who was hurt, who would only pitch a season in the majors for them. Uh, they got a guy who had two effective years of relief, and I already forgot the other piece, but needless to say, oh, a reliever who would pitch two years in the majors and was already kind of falling apart. So they got two guys who were nearing the ends of their career, and they traded away uh, a future all-star first baseman. So just trying trying to tie together it was they made one trade to get hawk harrelson on this day in history and then his replacement they would do a trade with the yankees that at the time was viewed as a win they got four pitching the indians were desperate for pitching in 74 but unfortunately for them the pitching wasn't good they didn't get any extended value the 74 indians would finish fourth in the al east going 77 and 85 they would finish fourth the next year going 79 and 80 uh John Ellis, who steps in at first base, would actually have a pretty strong year. They already had him in place. He was only 25 years of age. Uh, the problem is the outfield was actually pretty strong with Hendrick, uh, Spikes, and Oscar Gamble. But none of the other offensive uh, players really came together. You got guys like Jack Broheimer and Frank Duffy, who were fantastic defenders. Buddy Bell, who would turn into a great player, but the Indians would trade him away first. And the pitching staff back then... If you're curious, Klein and Peterson were third and fifth on the team in starts. Dick Bowman was fourth, uh, and he was below league average. Top of the rotation was pretty solid with Gaylord Perry and Jim Perry, but they were 35 and 38 respectively, and uh, Tom Buskey would actually lead the Indians in saves that year, with Fred Bean being the uh, second most appearances out of the pen for the Indians uh, during uh, during the 74 season. Uh, yeah, it's it's another one. I mean, you can see why the Indians were so bad for as long as they were. Um, it's just a situation where they kept making these terrible trades, getting guys who would play one to two years with them, and trading for guys who were at the end of a career instead of at the beginning of it. 
Um, you know, they, the John. The reason they even had John Ellis in the first place was a trade for another day to get into. But that was the Craig Nettles deal. Uh, this was just what the Indians did. They kept trading away talent to and just losing these trades constantly and maybe it's it's hard going back and looking through and seeing all this negativity but i also think uh, in some respects it makes us appreciate the current management all the more where instead of massively losing every trade it's almost a rare occurrence when the indians lose a trade uh, even slightly so be thankful for uh, what we've had the last few years it is a certain change from the uh, history of this team and everything that is is kind of gone on so that's more of a dig into history uh on the wednesday podcast we'll go more into some of the virtual season uh we'll talk about some of the other players uh and moves that have occurred early on uh, in the season at this point in time when we get back to the five days a week shows uh i'm hoping to do more of the draft talk as well But uh, I have been Jeff Ellis. As always, you've been fantastic. Remember to download, listen, rate, review, tell a friend. All of that helps our numbers during these times where uh, podcast listening is pretty much across the board way down because people are at home. I thank you and appreciate all of you who are still downloading, listening, and doing that every day. I apologize for my phone going off. I have been Jeff Ellis. As always, you are awesome. And remember, go Tribe.